the Podjectivity Network. did you think dan nope chris i'm not gonna allow that i'm gonna you gotta kick this off we've been talking a lot let's hear i want to hear your thoughts on hoosiers i think she's texting one of her friends right now while we were talking and she doesn't <laughs> want to get back to this conversation she's got i am really her. busy i am super busy with three other texting conversations right now while we're podcasting <laughs> no i was looking at some of the stuff i wrote down from hoosiers because this movie's this movie is old and one of the things that I looked up, I'm going to have to look on my computer to check it out. So it was, yeah. first of all, it's Gene Hackman. And he is one of those crazy actors. He reminds me of Leo DiCaprio, or vice versa, I guess, in that he has the full arsenal of emotions at his fingertips that he can pull on at any time. And one of the things you said, Andy, earlier about Leo is that he can go from pretty even-keeled to totally off-the-charts crazy and just losing it instantly. And you believe every single second. I feel that way about Gene Hackman when I'm watching him. He can just lose his shit, and I am in it. I am, like, there for every single thing that he's doing on screen. I just fucking love him. Well, he's the real deal, but I mean, it must be said in any analogy that compares Gene Hackman to Leonardo DiCaprio, handsomeness-wise, he's, uh, that's a short end of the stick. Gene Hackman is not a leading man in terms of romantic leading man. Generally, he's not cast that way, but he is in this movie. They put in a romance with Barbara Hershey, who... Barbara Hershey. Why Barbara Hershey? I never really got that. She's not my favorite, and I understand she's sort of rugged and no-nonsense, but I'm not sure about that casting choice. I think Gene Hackman's one of those actors that if you're starring opposite him, you have to, you have to hold your own. Do you know what else came and out in 1986? Just FYI. I'll come back around to that, but this was so intriguing. Can you name one other movie from 1986? Uh, Jeez, man. I'll give you a hint. Uh, You've lost that love and feel Top Gun. Top Gun. Ghost? Top oh. gun. I win, you lose. Look at Dan. <laughs> uh, 19, Hoosiers 1986, Chris? 1986. That's a pretty fucking hey. strong Two rock solid classics there, Top Gun and Hoosiers. I'm but, gonna go ahead now. Finish your point. No, Adams was just saying Gene Hackman. Yes, Barbara Hershey. She's not so sure, but sooner or later we're gonna have to get around to maybe, arguably, Dennis Hopper's greatest role. No, his greatest. 
Nah. I've never seen him in anything else that affected me emotionally as much as his portrayal of that alcoholic father. It was really? pathetic, and and it, it, he was endearing, and then, you know, he came so close to redemption, and then blew it. You know, it was just heart-rending in a way that, you know, I... That's a heavy topic, alcoholism, the way that they looked at that and dealt with it in that film and, and worked that into the story. Uh, it, you know, I was seeing that as a young person who hadn't really seen enough of the world to and experienced enough myself to know how vulnerable people could really be. But, like, that shook me and stayed with me in a way that made it talk about real in a heavy performance, like... Uh, it, I get it. I get it. I I could relate to the the embarrassment of the kid, where it was like uh, he knew that his dad was the town drunk, and I thought it was an interesting choice for them to have Gene Hackman try to save him as first of all stranger to a new town. Basically saying, fuck off, y'all. I'm doing this my way to the team's basketball, to the, all the parents and the previous coach and doing it his way. No friends. And also, by the way, I'm going to save the town drunk and re make him redeem himself. Like, that's a, that's a lot to just walk in out of nowhere and just take on not just the team, but also redeem a person who he thinks is oh. worth saving. Oh, yeah. it's a mad yeah. wrong character to say. Do it my way. <laughs> if if you have some spare time, you're also going to teach a high school civics course, <laughs> and you're going to uh, try to strike up a relationship with a clearly uh, bitter yeah. and damaged woman that yeah. the first person you met in town uh did he adopt any abused animals or anything on the side or he probably should have <laughs> like you Nath, no pets <laughs> no time he has no oh time <laughs> one I, I want to buy you a few minutes here yeah to uh to go all the way back to gene hackman the leading man if you could click on him in imdb i I just don't have that what? capability here. Yeah, what do you want to know? We'll just get him up in his filmography and hit us with a few of his highlights. But oh, why God. are you doing that? I can tell uh, you the ones that stick out to me. Which one? Because I, they're so freaking good. Chris, this is called a... Chris, Adams, this is called a tease. Go. You're bringing that up, and I'm going to ramble here for a second. Please do. And then I'll throw it back to you for the list. So, Barbara Hershey. Your thoughts on Barbara Hershey? I'm a little surprised. I thought she was... I'm not, like, the president of her fan club or, like, know all of her work or anything. <laughs> I've seen your t-shirt. But I thought that... I thought from the jump, when she meets him... When she meets him on the stairway in that classic school... Yeah. She She's perfect. She's... She's, uh... Uh... Reaches out, she knows he's new. I mean, when somebody different walks into the building, you know that he's new. Uh, 
She's a bitch. She is so. brave enough to greet him. Uh, I'm not even sure she introduces herself. But then she leaves it kind of icy. You know, there's that hilarious moment there where he's like, well, everybody in town is as nice as you are. This is going to be, should be easy. Well, uh, I wrote this down because I thought it was such a burn. And this was the other thing that yeah. struck me. In the Midwest, people don't talk to each other the way they talk to each other in this movie. Everyone is burning each other left and right. And one of the things she says is, Stay away from Jimmy. I don't want him coaching in Hickory when he's 50. Oh! Ouch! Oh, snap. Yeah. But her character, that is, that's her character, though, is she sees Shooter. She's watched Shooter. Shooter was a star in high school. Shooter had glory. And then he drank it away and never left home. Yeah. And... All these years later, when he goes in the diner, he still talks about making the big shot. And then... I think the first thing is he pissed it down his leg. Uh, there you go. There you go. Uh, uh, and... Uh, I can't remember her character name, but Barbara Hershey. She reveals later to Coach Dale. You know, he's like, why are you so fucking angry? <laughs> And she explains, like, she did leave, she did go to grad school, but then, what was it, dad died, mom got sick, Yeah, she had to I come had back. to come home, mm-hmm. and, I, and we can all relate to that, that life is going a certain way, and you have your plans, yes. but then, family, something you know, happened, yep. and it, it can just end it all, and what choice do you have except to be, she's obviously a good a, a, per, a person of high character she dropped it all. She dropped it all. Home, and, and here she is, grinding in corn. And then when they go for the walk, and he's he's like, hey, you want to go for a walk? And she's like, literally throws the rake 10 feet away. She's like, how about right now? And they go for a walk. Yeah. And in that moment, you can just feel how lonely they both are. And, ugh. ugh I know. And she's like, you can, what she's not saying is, I have been here for fucking ever living with my mother. I haven't been on a date in a decade. Thank you, God. (laughs) For you, Gene Hackman. If I may, having come from a living, growing up outside a town of 700, I feel like I know Hickory in a, in an intimate way. And uh, when you grow up in such a small place like that, that is your whole world. It doesn't occur to you that life could be bigger or better elsewhere. And then you get outside of that place and you see a bigger picture and you meet different kinds of people. But you also have to be on guard and defend a little bit against this prejudice that, oh, this kind of sent me an attitude like you're from a small sheltered little town. You don't know shit about shit. And that, like, love between Jackman and that character is any less glorious than people falling in love in San Francisco or somewhere else. Which leads me to the point that, you know, you can lead, you can lead a full life in a, in a little town every bit as much as you can in New York City, depending on how you choose to live. 
who you're surrounded by. And I, I do believe that maybe it's, it's more challenging in some ways, but there's, you know, I'm defensive, I guess is what I'm saying about this, this idea that, oh, I tried to escape the small town, but I got drugged back. Like the people and the culture and the place there is something you need to be ashamed of or doesn't offer you the opportunity to have a meaningful life. You know, it's a meaningful life is what you define it at to a degree and you can make it anywhere. You think uh, so? Do you think but don't you think there are city people and country people, sort of, and if you need more culture and art and like you need that, it feeds your soul and you're in a small town in the country with no diversity whatsoever, don't you think that that's a little bit soul-starving for people that really need that? I lived that. I agree, and I know what you're talking about, but does that mean that those towns aren't peppered with genius sometimes, too, and talented people that paint the set for the school play and lead the school pep band and bring a flavor and an element of this thing that you're otherwise starved for, like it might not be Greenwich Village, but it's not all or nothing. You know, there are little pockets and small communities of people that are sensitive and and appreciate culture that live amongst farmers and are married to farmers and teach farmers kids and do these kind of things. Well, that. Isn't you know, that, that's uh, kind of the point of the movie, because I think Gene Hackman came in saying, I do what I do no matter where I am. I can do it in a big college, or I can do it here in this small town. I do what I do, and what I do is make basketball players the best they can be. So, uh, amen. I think that's kind of what you're saying. He's just applying it to sports and not, like, art and culture. Right? Yeah. I'll make one last point and then I'll shut up for a little bit, but I go back to uh, the great, great Robert Duvall. He's Gene Hackman level, maybe even... Oh, yeah. Yep. Robert Duvall's a guy among actors. We can all agree, I think. And then in Lonesome Dove, he has that poignant scene with this prostitute who wants to escape her life of prostitution in this shitty little mining railroad town or whatever and go to San Francisco. Everything's going to be better in San Francisco. And he tells her at some point, hey, just so you know, life in San Francisco is still life. You know, like wherever you go, there you are. Uh, I'm here with you right now in this creek and we're having a good time together. Uh, Be present and make the most of what's happening, sort of. Which, you can... You can do, regardless, to a degree, of context. I mean, it's just so dismissive. To, I, I, I always feel like I have to defend a little bit this attitude that, oh, you know, the Midwest, the rural places, and they're conservative, backwards, whatever, whatever. Well, I come from there, you know. Hold on a second. Sorry I don't fit that stereotype. You know, and sorry, a number of people that I knew in that place don't resemble anything like you're characterizing. You know, it's it's insulting. It's it's 
it's too broad and too dismissive of of the diversity of life that exists even in these places where you don't expect it. Ah. Pipe down, you fucking hick. <laughs> it reminds me I, of, like, the difference between a tropical rainforest and, like, a small patch of prairie or something. You're still going to, or even desert, like, you're going to find life there. It's not a rainforest, but you're going to find all kinds of intricate ecosystems and really unique species, and I understand what you're saying. I get it. Fair enough. Back to Hoosiers. Chris, you were surprised at the, the amount of, say, ball busting that went on in this community? Um, uh, kind of rough on Coach Dale they were? Yeah. I, I, from, I'm from a place so small it's like not even a town. Yeah. And I'd I can relate. I, I have more thoughts on on the portrayal of the town, a lot of thoughts, really. Oh, really? Um, Go on. But I would say that in, for that time, for the early 50s in a small town, I think they, I think they kind of nailed it because everything that Nath just said about that town can be true. But when an outsider comes, there is still... I mean, it's something different. It's somebody new in the town. Resistance. Nath, I'm like, very aware of some of the some of the great things I've heard about the immigrants that came to your to Everly uh, and really taught people some things. But this is 1950, you know, white bread, small town, Indiana. That level of suspicion and sort of cockoffery seemed. Right on point. Like, people were very direct and like, listen here, big city, we don't trust you. We do things a certain way. I I thought that was pretty spot on. Part of my would be that frank. Part of my oh. question was whether he would be so ballsy with them, because he went into the barber shop when they were having a meeting. All the white men were talking about basketball, and he goes in oh, there. The and basically just showed his face, listened for about five minutes, and then was like, okay, it's been real nice talking to you. Good night. And yeah. leaves. And then when he, when the assistant coach, this I wrote this down because I thought it was so great. The assistant coach that had been coaching the boys sort of had assumed he would kind of be the second in command. He already knew what was going on. And this is the... The guy, um, he's a character actor. He's been around. I'm gonna the guy look... from Major League. Yes, that guy. I'm gonna look up his name too. But um, and Gene Hackman basically was trying to get this guy off of him like he was a mosquito. And eventually he goes, first off, my name is Norm, and secondly, your coaching days are over." Oh, yeah. Boom! Just no. like get the fuck out. That was the part where I'm like, did people, would, is that realistic? Like, would he really be a stranger in this town coming in and talk that way to a local? And you're saying yes? I am. <laughs> in now, the Midwest? It's those people's prerogative, it's those people's prerogative to be suspicious of him and make him prove it. Yeah. And it's Coach Neil's prerogative to how he responds to that, which is going in the barbershop, figuring out what everybody's saying and saying, been a pleasure speaking with all of you good night and then 
he's he can either cave to it or he can say he can eat or he can be a man and say listen here that's how it's going to be i'm in charge here i do this my way etc and he handled it that's the magic of him through this whole movie leading man gene hackman uh. is he handles situation after situation whether it's the barbershop or the drunken father of one of his players he handles situation after situation with calm direct certitude absolutely he knows what he always knows what to do and he always does the right thing or as best he can as flawed a man as he is we we find out about his past yeah but he, he always that coaching instinct that coaching drive in him to assess whatever's going on and do what is the best i can make of this what how can i be most helpful and how can i try to get the most out of the situation the person whatever and he keeps doing that over and over again i wrote that down that uh all of his techniques work like when he goes to talk to the, the way he talks to barbara hershey he kind of gives her a little bit of a fuck off and it makes her kind of like intrigued and i know it's a movie i know it's i know it's a movie i i understand oh and when he goes to jimmy and he's like just want you to know one thing i don't care if you play for me or not do what that you is will. absolutely the thing you say to jimmy chitwood <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You rebound for him for a while, and then you hold the ball for a second and say, I know you're a fucking star, and I don't care if you play. Mm-hmm. And out. No more explanation, nothing. Just out. Was he rebounding, if memory serves, with a ball that was so flat? Or yes. maybe the ground was so soft that it just... It didn't bounce. No bounce. It's not true. <laughs> the, the implication is that Jimmy had worn the grass off of the court it was just dirt just dirt the other thing that struck me about Hoosiers one of the scenes that really sort of made an impact one of the things we were talking about before a couple episodes ago was the kid when Gene Hackman first comes in and he's like guess what you're doing things my way now if you don't like it you can leave and one of the kids was talking and sort of whispering and giggling. And yep. and he's like, guess what? Uh, get out. And the kid brought his friend with him. He's like, come on, man. We're out of here. And the kid wasn't sure. He's like, am I going? Am I staying? And he ended up leaving. And then later, his dad brought him back that to the gym. And his dad was like, my son has something to say to you. Yeah, and the, <laughs> and dad, the yeah, dad, great dad. And the son is like, um, I'm I apologize, sir, for the disrespect that I showed. Like I was thinking of that scene, and going, would this happen now with parents? Do coaches get treated with this kind of respect, Dan? Well, I that moment. I spazzed out at that moment. I know. I could hear you spazzing out over the miles from Deerfield. That moment is, it, it touches on what the mission of solving everything was from the beginning, which was part of it, which was, I don't even know how to frame it, except that's a man, that's a man move there. That is, yes, you walked out. Yes, you've made a shit mess of things, 
but you can still fix this. Nothing is over. You're not, you know, you didn't kill anybody, but you're going to have to go back there and say some things to this guy. And this is what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to, and then you're going to, then you're going to toe the line. Uh, tremendous man moment. Tremendous dad moment. A uh, good man. A good man showing his son the way to do things. And then, thanks for bringing that up because when the assistant coach, when his old buddy that brought him in in the first place, like the principal or whatever. Yeah. After, after Normandale gets tossed from that one game and he has to run things, he has like an episode or something. And from then on, he's just like in bed. You know, that old guy. Yes, he had like a heart heart issue. Mm-hmm. They make it quite clear that it's too much. This guy can't handle it on his own. That dad steps up, puts a suit on, and becomes an assistant on the bench. And yeah. I, I wrote it down again, like, God damn it, that great dad. He steps up again. Just a, re- a normal guy. He's not a fucking basketball coach by any stretch, but he's just a good man. Mm-hmm. And being a good example for his son and for all the boys, just some really great man stuff in this. Really good, heartwarming man stuff. Real love. Side note, have you ever been invited to coach one of your kids' teams? I have coached one of my kids' teams. Have you? I dodge yeah. that I dodge that so hard whenever the invitation comes. I'm like, hmm, what? My phone's not working. Um, I don't Adam, think I got that message. What? Adam's <laughs> Coach Tebow? No, thank you. <laughs> uh, I have indeed coached one of my kids' teams. <laughs> Uh, we had so many kids in Deerfield youth ball in like fifth grade that we split it in. We decided to have one giant team where the kids at the end never get to play or yeah. have two teams of like seven. Yeah. Much like Hoos- oh my God. It was just like Hoosiers. <laughs> uh, you know, so we just, we decided to have one team of eight and one team of seven. And I got, we split up the talent as best we could. And I got Max on my team. And it kind of, boy, that's a whole other pod too, but it it took it right out of Max. He didn't, me being the coach was the worst possible thing. Really? Uh, Yeah, he felt, he was, I was like too close. It felt like, he felt like everything I ever said to him, I was like singling him out. And I went, I went out of my way not to like rain on his parade. Mm -hmm. Just if he was going through the layup line, I'd be like, hey, you know, Get it up there on the board a little higher. Just, you know, normal stuff. And he took it so personally. But sure. that's what your kids do. Your yeah. kids take everything so goddamn personally. Uh, and, yeah, the coaching thing. Of course, they don't take uh, a moment to dance volunteering his time to instruct me and all my friends on how to play this fucking game. No, there's not a, a second of that. Uh, every time I said his name, he just died inside. And it he was a good basketball player. And honest to God, my involvement kind of like beat it out of him. And it, it's too bad. And I wasn't like Bob Knight or something. I was as passive and as friendly and gentle because these bunch of kids that don't know how to play basketball. So it, it wasn't like I was some kind of disciplinarian or something. It just, anyway, not a, not a great scene. It's well, too bad. That was one of and the. That has lessons of its own. That was. For him to quit. Oh, he quit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was the end of it for him. Oh, bummer. But for other reasons, too. Uh, that was one, the one of... coaching story. When we were talking about youth sports earlier, the one coaching story, well, two. 
the one that's important though is that we were at a tournament. This is early in my tenure. This is like my first Saturday as being a game coach. You have some good coaching stand. Did I what? You have some good coaching shorts that were high up under your ball sack. <laughs> uh, negative. Uh, my wardrobe is filled with knee length shorts. Did you beautiful, have a beautiful modern basketball shorts? Did you have a whistle? A whistle. Oh fuck yeah! I had a whistle and a whiteboard <laughs> that we used often, and I use that whistle a lot. I am whistle driven. <laughs> Uh, I use the whistle in the house when it's dinner time. Because <laughs> when, when kids are on Xbox or whatever, I'm not yelling up the stairs and waiting for an answer. I blow the whistle twice, and if you don't come down... Are you for real? Yeah. <laughs> they fucking hate it, and I don't care. I'm not going to beg all of you to come down and eat. I'm going to blow the whistle, and that's it. I love Maybe it. I am going to try it. I have a whistle, and I will now use it and see if that works. So let me let me tell you a, a heart-wrenching coaching story. Uh, well, I don't know if it's that bad. But these, these things, you go to these sites on a Saturday, and you're scheduled to play three games maybe, you know, sometimes four. And it's like if you win game A, you go to bracket G, that whole thing. And, like, we had a game. It was a tight game with the Randolph Rockets. Randolph takes their basketball really seriously up there. That's a small town like Hickory that's got nothing else to do but basketball, and they care. They really care. And their youth program is tremendous. We're playing a Randolph team. It's a close game. And we have a game in the immediate next time slot. And we're ahead, behind, but it's close. It doesn't matter. And in the waning moments, I left the bench players in to finish the game because we had another game immediately. And that's all I was seeing was like, hey, we got to play again. Like 30 seconds after this game, we go over to the next court and play another game. And at the same time, it was like, no, I'm not just going to put the best players back in just because it's close. These kids went out for basketball too. Sure. They get to play real minutes. They're going to play for real. Good coach. Winner blues. Good job. And the, the, the reaction I got from the parents on that was, I don't, you know, it wasn't ugly. I didn't get a bunch of emails and phone calls and stuff, but I could see it up in the crowd that the parents were, were unnerved huh. that like the good players didn't go back in. And that was a sign real early that like, maybe I'm not the right guy for this because I, I'm going to, it's a, a, a little team, a little youth team, a bunch of fifth graders, but I took it very seriously and I was like, no. This kid is going to handle the ball. I know I've got a better ball handler here, but this kid is going to do it. We're, he deserves a chance, and how are you ever going to know unless you get a chance? Good for you. And what are you going to feel like that every time the game gets close, you get benched for this other kid that's a great ball handler? No, you're, this kid was going to play. So that's my that's one little story. And that it might have been that same tournament. It might not have been, but it, we made it to like a fourth game not because we won or whatever it was just the schedule and the kids were fucking exhausted and for our before our last game we had a long break and they were like on their devices and stuff and finally when the game started they just were not into it and we were getting destroyed and by the end of the game the parents were right there behind the bench 
And by the end of the game, it was just like, who can I put in that's not going to cry? It was that, like, they were that wrung out, and they were that... There was no game being played. This was like, how do I manage these little kids, and who can I put in that won't cry? Wow. And they were getting throttled by a much better team. We And that was the price of us having two teams, is I had, like, seven kids, and that's, as you see in Hoosiers, that's tough. And these are fifth graders, you know. They're little kids. They're just little boys. And uh, long day. So there's my coaching career. <laughs> and then the guy I coached with, uh, he got thrown out of a game. <gasps> Couldn't control himself real well. What? Uh, he's a 21-year-old guy. Good basketball mind. It's real, honest to God, a good coach. But he was 21. And he had no business being in charge of a basketball team in that environment when you're with a bunch of, like, dads and parents the other coaches are dads and everyone's parents are there you know it's a family thing wow this kid was this kid was ill prepared and uh boy that was a fun night of like phone calls and like oh god what do we do and he gets thrown out of the game and the other parents are saying dan you gotta get out get him off the floor and i'm just sitting in the stands like what what do you want me to do like this kid's digging his grave here but then I had to, like, escort him off the floor, and then I had to coach the last, like, minute and a half of the game. It was a disaster. Oh, my God. Oh, my so, God. I've hijacked the podcast long enough with my coaching. If I may, please, quickly, just an experience that I had probably, this was just pre-COVID shutdown. Uh, for years, I, I had the good fortune of being neighbors with uh, Leah Moore and her son Nathaniel, Nathaniel Buffet, and Nathaniel, Nathaniel is a special Olympian and and an athlete. And this kid that I, he moved in the neighborhood when he was about eleven, I think, and now he's twenty. Oh my! So, God. yeah, so he's out in the work world and he's working full time, but he still like is engaged in these rec leagues and. And plays hoops on the weekend. And for years I've been saying, oh, Nathaniel, i got to come out and watch you play. But I haven't made it out, probably because my kids have been doing stuff and, you know, I've just been preoccupied with, with that. And finally, finally, I got my kids out and we went and saw him play. And to see people with disabilities playing basketball and the community the people that are in chairs on either side of the of the out of bounds lines there in the gym and the volunteer coaches and reps and people involved in that is to renew your faith in what is good about all about sports and humanity in general really absolutely absolutely because it's such a comedy of errors on, on one level, and that, like, you know, the refs are showing a lot of grace, and just in terms of, like, all right, he traveled, whatever. He double-dribbled, fine. You know, just let the game continue. It's going to have to be a really fucking egregious foul before we stop the action, but otherwise, just let him play. Let him have fun. You know, and there were these... It was men, women, 60-year-old guy, 20-year-old woman, you know, 
all this range of humanity and people who were really uniformly just like happy to be out there playing the game was fun and, and basketball man basketball basketball we're playing this fun game and people are cheering for me when I score oh my god this is awesome and and there was this one guy I just wanted to run out on the floor and hug him because he had a smile on his face the whole time regardless of what was happening and 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 he got a rebound and he scored and then it just you wouldn't think that this smile could go to another level but he kept up to a fucking another level and uh, just so heartwarming it was like gonna burn through my chest and I thought this is where I want to coach. Oh, this man. is how I get back into the game. Like, if I can, at some point, even if I'm just a spectator, like, I got to go back and see more of this because it was so pure, you know, the joy of the game. And Nathaniel, this was like a second son to me, saw me and my kids in the crowd and was like, oh, fuck. I better bring, better bring my A game because, you know, these guys came to see me. I'm going to bring it. And he, uh, he did so gloriously. Like, he was just a scoring machine. Uh, you know, he was making great defensive plays and came over with the high fives. And it was like, you know, it was it was so life-affirming. And it was uh, it was beautiful. There was really none of this. When the ref made a call or whatever, oh, what the, what fucking game are you watching? And, <laughs> all of this stuff that just muddies the water and, and makes you lose sight of like why we're even fucking doing this. People are getting some exercise. People are, you know, and the other team scored. The other parent and the other side were just like, oh. Good shot, good move. You know, it was all yeah, encouragement. All sportsmanship, all love. Yeah, why does it take ability? Why does it take a disability, you know, that that kind of context to make people decent? Why does it take, and this is going to be a bit of a leap, but relevant, I think, that why does it take a deadly virus for people to start posting signs and realize that we're in this together? Humanity, you know. Dude, yeah, we all feel it, man. I think we're all feeling it. I'm gonna have to opine about Indiana in my Hoosiers comments, and we will get to it. But one every summer, we went and visited my grandparents down there, Phyllis, Grandma Phyllis, my dad's stepmom, and Nelson, and Teresa, and AJ. Uh, and one year, just because in the heyday of Boston, we passed through French Lick and went and saw his house and went to Larry Bird's basketball connection. That was like his restaurant gift shop type place. Um, and then we went to Bloomington and saw Assembly Hall where we caught Bob Knight coming out of the building and got a picture. So wow. we took a fuck bam. Yeah, we took a family sojourn to basketball country one summer. I thought that was a basketball camp or something, but no, you just, that was luck. He was, there was a camp of some sort going on, because this is summer, this must be June, 
and we just went to see assembly hall and it turned out it was open and there was a camp going on and two sets of doors you know big atrium or whatever we go in we we go in the outside doors and he was walking through the atrium there and we you know what do you do it's like seeing uh santa claus or something or fucking easter bunny like oh my god that pre-internet so <laughs> yeah it was, the paper it was dick higgs probably huh who made the approach and was like hey mr knight oh yeah would you mind he was he was like carrying boxes out of his vehicle he had like a bronco or something and he was carrying boxes you know of like t-shirts or jerseys or something and it was just, we just caught him in a very normal moment. And my dad just did the standard, like, hey, Bobby, you know, we're, we're down here from Wisconsin, and we just wanted to see, would you mind taking a picture with my kid? Oh, sure. Yeah, he was a good good sport about it. And he, my mom got squeezed off a couple pictures with her 110 camera. Remember those little rectangular cameras? Flashbulb. Yeah, yeah, it's just a real skinny rectangle of a camera, um, snapped a couple pictures, and then he goes, my dad was off to the side, and he was like, come on, get over here, and my dad was like, oh, that's fine, and he goes, no, come on, get over here, so there's another picture that my dad's did too. Oh, just that's... a real, just a normal human moment there with a legend. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you feel about the way that he went out. Uh, boy, that's a long hijacked pod right there. Um, yeah, because yeah, I was raised to just follow him into battle and accept, accept what, accept him. Because what he does as, as hard to understand and as unpopular as it might be, it all has a reason. And it turns young men into it turns boys into young men. He was a little bit like that Gene Hackman character, right? Like, you know, the strong, this is the way things are done. And if you don't agree with me, your coaching days are done. Or your playing days are done. Like, you know, he was, and, and, and it was a formula for success. I mean, it's hard at some point to argue with national championships and success. So, like, it became a bit of a moral dilemma, I think, between, like, okay, you've brought glory to our program and success, but are the means, you know, worth it, essentially? And, like, can they, can we justify them in this modern context? And there was a time, you know, so he, it all kind of fell apart in about, I'd say, 92 or 93 94 maybe they made it back to a final four in like 93 and lost to duke so that was uh the fab five cincinnati duke and indiana no that was the 91 final four i think any in any event shortly after that is when it all started to unravel and you think just 10 years prior 1981, the Isaiah Thomas years, people came to him 
because he was like that. You know, the the young men, their families, whatever, went to him for that reason, for that discipline, for that extreme experience that you weren't just going to get coached. You were going to get, like, reshaped. And people changed, you know. it it People changed. He didn't change. No way. But the, the people changed around him. And uh, things got a lot softer and more PC and no more, no more Bob. But one thing that I loved, okay just coach talk that just took me back was <laughs> when those two kids were goofing around and he goes, wipe that smile off your face. I just so remember getting reamed out for giggling or like <laughs> just being disrespectful. Just that line. It just is. I think every single coach in the history of coaching in America has said that. At least one time. Wipe that smile yep. off your face. I just really enjoyed that. All the drills that they show, Nath, do you have a memory of all the drills that they do? I was going to ask you guys that. Were were those drills kind of familiar, I guess, is the question? Not kind of. They are spot on. That's one of the... The movie gets a few things a little bit janky. Oh. Not that part. The, the drills that they run when he institutes his plan are all real. I did every single one the of those. The side shuffle with the handout. Yep. Left yep. handout, shuffle to the left. Right handout, shuffle to the right. Weaving in the and out of feet. cones. There's the one they do with the quick feet where you're... you're uh, Rapid, what do you call that with the feet as fast as you possibly can? And... I call like that stepping. I call that run away. You're you stepping. That. We had to do that in football too. I mean, it was just a cardio thing, you know, like rapid fire yep. feet. Yep. And Fast feet. You're all doing that together for like this, what seems like forever, and then he'll go left, and you have to like turn your shoulders and turn your body left and turn back right. Oh, that one especially. That was a that was brutal. But yeah, all those defensive slide drills, uh, the drill where you. You're in a line and you're putting the ball off the backboard and like doing an offensive rebound kind of drill. All those drills, super real. I love that too because it's like, I went to a volleyball camp once. I have never worked so hard in my entire life. Just, you'd have to dive and lunge and roll and bruise your body and just go 10 times harder than you normally would go. And it was a long day. I never felt so good in my entire life than at the end of that camp. My body was broken and my spirit was shattered because it was like you thought you could only go so far. You thought you knew where your edge was. And the coach, a good coach, can bring you past your edge without hurting you really hurting you and 
It reminds me too of the guy that I dated in high school used to play football and we had a ferocious high school football coach. He was missing a voice box and so he had to hold up a little thing to his throat and his voice sounded like no yes like that Darth Vadery kind of. So he was already kind of scary. But they would wow. have triple practices over the summer where it would just be blazing hot and with 2 hours in everyone's puking already. Everyone's super dehydrated, but it doesn't stop. They just keep going. And I remember at the time thinking, well, is he pushing him too hard? Like, what becomes abuse? What's good coaching and what's abusive? And not necessarily... What's that? That's ultimately what led to the Bobby Knight having to be dismissed from Indiana, was that question, that line. What's abuse and what's motivation? Go on. It's a good question because... Going back to that volleyball camp, I was definitely bruised. I wasn't dehydrated because it was indoors. I was definitely pushed beyond my limits. But in the end, it was good. It was a good experience. However, this the coaches that we had in that camp were not breaking our spirit down. They weren't doing what Gene Hackman was trying to do. And he literally said, I'm going to break them down and build them back up which is almost like a military mentality of you kind of strip the personality away until it's just you're barking out orders and people are following what you're asking them to do. And then you build up their spirit into a team built like baking the team in to what you're building. So I don't, I understand the concept of, pushing people beyond their limits because most people can go beyond what they think they can do. And that's the whole point of like marathon running or endurance sports. Your brain will check out and tell you that you can't do it long before your body can actually not do it. So it's just a matter of getting past your brain. And that's what a good coach does. He brings you past or she brings you past your brain basically. And but the abusive part, and I've seen some clips of Bobby Knight, and it did seem to me like he was actually abusive. Like, he did cross a line. There were good things, but then I think he also crossed the line. Gene Hackman never crossed the line that I could see in this movie, but he knew... Yeah, that's the whole reason he's in Hickory, though. Was because he did cross the line at he, one point. He punched, he punched a player, one of his own players. Yeah. And I... It's been long enough since I've seen it that I was like, what is his dark secret? And then, yeah, when she finds that article. I'm surprised they didn't talk more Ugh. about it. Why? What was it that made him lose such control that he punched his own player in the jaw? A kid. And that Barbara Hershey was like, eh, no biggie. Kiss me anyway. <laughs> like, yeah. if you're like, oh, I, I punched a 15-year-old kid because I lost my shit. She's like, well, you know. How about a well, smooch? <laughs> uh, I'm with her. And it was 1951. <laughs> Things were different. Uh, I don't know. Different times, but still punching but yeah, a 15-year-old in the jaw? He did lose it, and he was. this was his last chance. This was it. You're a parent, so I guess you have some authority to speak on this, but like, I did just a wee bit of coaching 
when I first moved to Madison to try and just stay connected to the game of basketball, where I was like an assistant JV coach at a high school at West. And I wanted to punch multiple players in the face every day. <laughs> yeah, baby. But did you? All right, fine. Maybe I didn't. But it wasn't 1951 like Dan said. And also, like, part of his appeal is for all of his command and all of his authority, like he was passionate. And when you're passionate and you care that much about something, you know, it can sometimes get the better of you. And I think what she was seeing and what she was responding to in that guy and in that character is that, you know, he, he, he was a man of conviction, of passion, he cared. You know, to the point that he would, you know, go out on a limb and give the alcoholic that everybody else had written off a chance. But also, you know, if you crossed him at the wrong time, he might punch you in the face. <laughs> Whatever. He was, he was not, he wasn't, he didn't conform to your norms of what was expected or acceptable. He was exceptional. You see that through the movie. Uh, various montages and various moments of the games where he gets thrown out. Uh, oh, I love that. He slaps the little black playbook against his hands and he's so pissed off. Are you kidding me? They, Did you they, see they that? Keep showing, they keep showing Barbara Hershey and her mother up there in the stands. And like... Multiple times when he does something a little bit over the line, she, you know, it's Hollywood. She like wells up a little bit, you know, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. They show, they show the look, it advances their love kind of, or advances their affection a little bit. Um, yeah. What, what Nav said there, she, she sees that in him and it, she likes the passion. She's she, she sees the passion. She forgives him, not knowing the whole story. And she sees the passion, and she can see that he's a good guy trying to help Dennis Hopper, who is heartbreaking. Yeah. Do you want I don't to know that this is a callback to the beginning. Uh, I don't know that that performance is that stellar, but I love the fact that he took it on. Dennis? And even if it's not perfect, it, it isn't the greatest acting ever. But it it's it's a great that movie needs it. Here's that what I need that character really bad and it's and he, he doesn't whether what am I trying to say? Like I thought he's a little corny there towards the end when he's stuck in the hospital, but I guess what what other can, acting can you do except to keep on saying like there's never been a school this small in the state championship. Uh, I don't, here's what I didn't buy. There's a great vehicle. I didn't buy that if he became, okay, so there's the kid that's playing basketball. His dad's a drunk. He's been embarrassing him for his entire life. Then, all of a sudden, the dad is an assistant coach. I don't buy that that kid is going to be able to play his best game, or any game, really, with his dad on the sidelines coaching him and trying to stay sober and literally like having the shakes and stuff, that kid is going to be so distracted 
by his dad being on the sidelines. There's no that was the only part of the movie where I feel like um I don't I don't buy that. I don't think he could I'm sorry, but I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to defend Dennis Hopper here and say even though you guys have seen it more freshly than I have, like some of the most poignant scenes in any film ever for me are always the moments like I've referenced this before. When Leonardo DiCaprio was Howard Hughes and was just overwhelmed with obsessive, compulsive, paranoid, probably schizophrenic, uh, mental health issues and gets called before Congress and just has to pull his shit together and deliver in that moment the testimony to the human spirit that that performance represents and like when Dennis Hopper when he gets kicked out when Gene Hackman gets kicked out and all of a sudden he's got the fucking reins and he communicates in his eyes and everything like oh fuck I'm not up to this I didn't sign up for this but I'm gonna make the call and and you guys have to listen to me because I'm the coach now and oh oh fuck but I'm doing it and he, and he pulls his shit together enough, and he has that moment where he, he calls for the picket fence, don't get caught watching the pain dry, and it works. But his kid had to lead him to it. His kid was like, what do you think, Dad? Are they going to try to get it to number 12? or Like, his kid had to feed him. The fact that he didn't fold in that moment, and he stood his ground, and made the call, and they won. Even if it ended tragically, like there was that moment of redemption, and there was that message that you shouldn't count people who appear to be broken out. True, Completely. I get no, I get all that. I understand. Good for him, redemption, all that. You know, alcoholism is a disease. I get that. He he pulled his shit together. Human spirit. Got it. However, I don't buy that his son could have played the game with that kind of distraction. I just don't think it could have happened. I remember when my parents were getting divorced and my dad was sitting in the bleachers. I was so distracted by his presence when I was trying to play a game because he was sitting as an outcast. It was like all the parents were in one section and he was, oh, like, geez. way off off to the side by himself because he had outcast himself because he had had an affair and everything. And just his mere presence in the gym was so distracting, I couldn't focus on what I was doing. So to have the alcoholic dad cleaning himself up but sitting on the sidelines coaching, no way. I don't think that kid could play. I just don't buy it. Chris, I'll give you a, I'll give you a point for that, uh, and they try to paper over that with Coach Dale, who's like he just keeps saying like keep your head in the game, keep yeah. your head in the game. But right. Yeah, I was feeling that too. That like his life is way too much turmoil, and he's went through way too much to just accept that. But that's I'll, that has to go under the Hollywood category, just like Hollywood. Okay, we'll take it. But I, I feel you there. That That is, and then his dad, he does fall apart too. They, they do have the patience to show him. Coach Dale gets kicked out the first time, 
and they make it very clear that Shooter just wilted. Like, he had nothing. Yeah, that's true. And at the second time, Coach Dale goes out to the house and says, you know, you got to get it together, blah, blah, blah. And he says, I will, but you just don't get kicked out of any more games. And, of course, the very next game is when he pulls it. He flips out on the ref, and then he goes, throw me out. <laughs> what? Are you crazy? I'm saying, throw me out. Yep. Okay. I love that. I love that. And he that. throws him out, and there's that kind of, he has that, uh, what's the word, mischievous grin, and he hands the playbook over to him. And that second opportunity, yes, Shooter, at the prompting of his son, does pull it together and say, okay, boys, and, and he gets it going. He gets it going through him, and he's able to deliver. I had, I had a couple other I thoughts. I the two, though. Yes. Coach, 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 but I think what you're maybe underestimating a little bit is what's real to me is that even in a broken family dynamic, like from my own experience, that was touching the the example that you drew from your own experience, but what I would contribute is that, you know, even when you've been disappointed by your parent or, or your dad, like you still crave a connection to your dad. Yeah, I could see that. You're desperate for your dad to show up for you in some way at some time, anytime. Please God. You know, Please, God, show up for me in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that character, and in fairness to the movie, like, he's conflicted. You see, he's not like, oh, great, Dad's on the sideline. He's suspicious. He's like, what the fuck are you doing here? (laughs) And he pushes him through the trophy case at some point. And I mean, it's fucked up. But at least they have that moment. I'll defend it. I think it's beautiful. Carry on. Good point. That's a good point. I could see that. When you're starving for that kind of connection, you want it to work so bad. I get it. You want it. Yeah. Um, I had a couple other things. Uh, one of the thing. So one of the things that kind of struck me was the reason part of what Gene Hackman does so well and why I liked him immediately in this movie is because. He so clearly represented this thing of, okay, you've, you have fucked up in your life. You've made amends. And, and I think later in the movie, he's like, I had everything taken away from me with one thing that he did. He, he hit that kid in the jaw and it was like his whole career just disappeared. And, and yet he holds strong to his convictions of like what he thinks the team should be, how he thinks they should basically be coached to build up a team and make them the best that they can be. He came into this town not knowing anybody, not having, he had one friend, I guess. And that kind of inner strength and inner conviction and with the entire town telling you, you can't be who you are. That's not welcome here. You can't do things your way. The reason why this is such a likable, lovable character is because he's like, my way is the right way because I believe it. I believe in myself and I know I'm doing the right thing. And like 
I, th I feel like that's part of why this story, this movie is so beloved is because people want to be that so bad in their own lives to be able to say, I know what I'm doing is, it's like the Michael Jordan effect. I'm so confident, even though I'm in a losing game, just watch me. I'm going to do it the, my way and it's going to work. Oh, it's the whole money ball effect too. It's part of what makes that so so appealing and it's Brad Pitt bonus for you Adams that that he gets to come in and say look I've got this different way of looking at things that takes into consideration data rather than your sort of conventional assessment of like what you see the subjective you know assessment of talent like I'm looking at numbers and I'm working math into this equation in a way that is revolutionary and you know, I, I think I'm onto something and everybody's saying oh you're full of fucking shit you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> I've been in this business for decades and you're not going to tell me nothing and then he's like well sorry I've been appointed to this position above you like Gene Hackman saying hey I'm the head coach so you're just going to have to deal with it, and we'll see at the end of the season who's, what's what. What I love about this movie, and I think it probably speaks to when it was made, is that I feel like maybe if this movie was made now, they might not have won in the end, and it might not have ended on them, women, on them winning. I think it might have been, oh, maybe they just lost by two points, but we're a good team, and that's not the point of the story. Winning isn't everything, and da-da-da-da-da. I love this movie because they fucking win, and and it ends on them winning. <laughs> that's part of why I love it so much. Uh, I wonder why you suspect if this were made now that, that the Hickory team wouldn't win. Because things are more complex now. It's more complicated. I think, unless it's a... Unless it's a movie made for kids, I think movies are more... Let's realize, you were, you, were, you were criticizing it earlier because you didn't feel like the father-son dynamic was maybe real enough. Like, that's maybe the conundrum modern of, of the modern, sto of modern storytelling is that you don't get, like, Unforgiven signal to turn in that a little bit, right? Like, Clint Eastwood went from being white hat, black hat to gray and human and messy and yes and there's a certain mess element and i think movies now have to have a twist it's not necessarily a cut and dry happy ending to movies nowadays even frozen like the kids movie it's not like oh the guy gets the girl and it's happily ever after it's like there's always a twist something unusual or unexpected has to happen and in a movie like this, it's not, this is a storybook movie. It's like a fairy tale movie. And they win, and then it's the end. And it's the, yeah. the panning to the team shot, and then oh. credits roll. You're going you're gonna to make me cry. They, <laughs> they, they slowly zoom in on this, the trophy case in the school yeah. and the picture of the team. Yeah. And they replay some lines from the locker room 
And then it ends with him saying, I love you guys. Yep. And mm-hmm. and then I just cry every single time. <laughs> I, was a I was a total mess. <laughs> Knew it was coming, and I was still a mess. I, ne- I needed that. I wanted that sort of purity. Um, I think that's why I love the movie so much. Part of it. Other than Gene Hackman being awesome in every single way. Adams, could you Google uh, real-life Hoosiers? Because that's a real team. It's not called Hickory. It's another town. But that really happened. Oh, and then while I'm doing that, you guys can discuss other notes I have. Converse high tops. Oh, right on. As basketball shoes. There's no arch support in those. Yeah. That's all there was till like, 1971. And then, there was... if there's only seven players, who are they scrimmaging against? Uh, yeah, good question. you got to get creative. That, you're going to come up with that when you, when you Google real-life Hoosiers. There is a real team. And to your point of, in a modern movie, they'd come up two points short. That's why Hoosiers is an exception. This really happened. This really fucking happened. So it's M- Milan High School 1954 basketball go. team. They won the Indiana High School Boys Basketball Tournament Championship. They had 161 kids enrolled in their school. The smallest oh. school ever to win a single class state basketball title in Indiana. But they didn't okay, beat... Okay, I'm going to get wild here. Keep reading. It wasn't Notre Dame. It was... They beat uh, Muncie Central. Okay. Okay. That's another thing I grew up with, is Dick... Uh, his affection and his memories of that, that here in Wisconsin we have, like, Class A, B, C, whatever. Now it's Division One through Six, I think. But at that time in Indiana, that's true. It was one tournament, an open tournament to all schools of all sizes. Don't you kind of wish it was? Ever. Don't you kind of wish it was like that now? Well, I can say yeah. I guess you know it's more. I mean, I like the system we have here in Wisconsin, of course. Uh, Kids who grow up in a larger metropolitan area are at such an advantage by being in league and competitive clubs and all of this and the, and the game is so refined mm. at such an age that these smaller places couldn't hope to compete. You're not going to get Cinderella stories like you got in the 50s where everybody was, it was a more level playing field because it wasn't such a, a fucking farm system. Or okay, you know, but, so this kind of does lead to a question of our private teams and like leagues at an early age ruining sports yeah yeah what i was just i mean they were just out there for the joy of playing yeah the joy of sport versus you know making the special leagues so go to Chicago and compete against their elite club and excellence yeah you know versus shooting the ball off of the fucking dirt floor that didn't bounce you know like 
that was part of the appeal of that movie is that you could come from nothing and have, you know, no advantages, but just the, you know, the will and the talent would, could rise and, and could compete theoretically. Like, that just couldn't happen now, I don't think. There's, yeah. So you're saying there's more joy, greater benefit to people playing not necessarily in elite kind of competitive levels, but more because they're giving it their all and there's yeah. still joy in it? Yeah. Well, it depends. Do you love the game or do you love to win? Both. I mean... and. Part of it, and I mean, the game can be elevated. The game can be elevated by the level of competition. But, you know, at some point, it's a balance that you have to manage. How important is it to you to, you know, prove yourself to be the best or elite? Versus how important is it for you to just be part of a team and play this game that you love? And, you know, these are these are competing forces that, you know, that contribute to decisions that parents have to make in terms of, like, how much am I willing to pay to, you know, it, sometimes it's talent, but sometimes it, unfortunately now... It's about what can you afford. Right. Yeah. To, what level can you afford to compete at, which is, you know, unfortunate. <laughs> so I almost feel like there has to be two different sections of sport now, recreational and competitive. Yeah. From the time that they're seven through high school and beyond, because... Playing frisbee for, what do you call that, ultimate frisbee for fun is different than playing ultimate frisbee to be a champion team, you know. Play, doing gymnastics for fun is completely different than competitive gymnastics. It's almost like two separate tracks, and I feel like it's harder and harder to find recreational sports especially like with things with football and stuff, we've been able to find one place that really focuses really well on um, the fun. Have fun. Try your best. Listen to your coach. Like those are the three things in recreational sports that you focus on. Everybody gets to play. Everybody, Everybody gets, gets to play. Yep, everyone gets their hands on the ball. That kind of thing. And it's... it. it it starts earlier and earlier, but it feels like I don't want to lose that recreational option, and I fear that that recreational option is getting lost, and I'm not sure exactly what to do about it. I don't, I don't want to go too deep into this, but I really feel like there's a capitalist versus socialist dynamic at play in, in how we approach sports. This idea of... Are you willing to share playing time? Are you willing to share the ball? Are you willing to sacrifice winning every fucking contest so that everyone else gets to enjoy this game that we're all playing together? A collective 
sort of approach to I don't need to hoard all the fucking glory. I can I can be a teammate. I can share. I can sacrifice. Which know? is what Gene Hackman was trying to teach them in like the first few games. He's like, you pass that ball four times. I don't care if we lose. You be a team. That's what matters. Right? But that was the foundation we're building here. Mm-hmm. That was 1951, though. And we grew up in the era, as much as I love Jordan, Jordan was, uh, okay, the game's on the line. Get me the fucking ball and get out of my way. They did that so in I the can... last game with Jimmy. And the, Coach Dale is flexible enough <laughs> that when... Under the greatest pressure, when it matters the most, the kids in the huddle are like, I think Jimmy can get open. He can take his guy. And Coach Dale is like, okay, if that's what you guys say, okay. Yeah. Because it's we're, we're in uncharted territory. We're yeah. in a place that coaching can't take us. And like, he has proven his he point. Does, he changes at the end. He, let, he gives into that and lets Jimmy just, okay, Jimmy, shoot the ball. Mm-hmm. Which- take over. But I mean, that's, that's different than, you know, isolation ball, as they call oh, it. Oh, yeah. Ball or one-on-one ball that Dan and I grew up with. True. Like, they still play the game, and but Jimmy's taking the shots. Yep. And, you know, I don't know. It's uh, also just the way that the game was marketed. And the way that certain stars rose above everyone else and were getting all the big endorsement dollars and the big contracts and the disparity in that. Like, how are you part of a team yet still that much more successful than everybody else? And there's some stories like that that are a little heartening where you see like little socialist sensibilities creep through the capitalism of sports in Tom Brady saying... I'll do your Old Spice ad or whatever, so long as all my offensive linemen that protect my ass can also be part of this spot. You know, and these are the grunts. These are the guys that get no glory but are part of the team and otherwise wouldn't get those endorsement dollars and that love. And for him in that position to say, you want me? You also have to have them. You know, there's not enough of that, in my opinion. A few more notes that I that I got to get through here. Uh, I love when the minister, like, pre-game, there's a little pep talk time, mm-hmm. and then at some point they give the nod to the minister to come in and have a few words. And the first time he comes in, he goes, be strong and of good courage. I, oh. I don't know. I just like that part. Yeah. Uh, you were saying earlier that uh, in a modern movie, it wouldn't be so storybook. They might lose by two, etc. Yeah. Where I thought they make up for that. Because I kept telling myself, you know, the same thoughts were in my mind too, and I had to keep telling myself, like, this isn't just a movie that somebody made up. It is. It, it's really Milan High School, and it really happened in 1954. And you know, they change up the names and the details and stuff. But this really happened. Where they offset it in the movie that everything isn't just peaches and cream is when they win the game to go to state. 
that's when Shooter has to go to the hospital and dry out. Mm -hmm. So the highest of the high for the team is offset by Shooter's near death. They find him in the stream. Like, yeah. Him and Coach and his son are wandering around yelling for him, and then they find him, like, face down, and he's all blue. And, like, so, like, the highest high is offset by, and I, I just watched that last night and was like, yeah, that's life. Like, oh, you can have the greatest victory of your life, and then COVID-19 comes along, and mm. you can't leave your house for five weeks. And it's just, it's just another day. Every day is just the highest highs followed by some terrible news, and mm. you just never know when it's going to come, and it, sometimes it comes in groups. And, and So that, that hit me last night that, that, that gave it realism to me too. That you know, this it's very Hollywood, but it did give it some realism for me. Uh, little touches in there where they, I think they get the period and the people right. Huh. Is Shooter comes to visit Coach at his house, and he's armed. He's carrying a gun. Like how many of us have? <laughs> Had an armed person come up to the door unannounced and we're like, oh, come right in. And then they just lean their gun up by the door. I come from a place where that happened. No, they were my neighbors and stuff. What? But that, Are you serious? Oh, yeah, because yeah, people hunt. And like, after they're done hunting on your land, they come in and say hi and they tell you what they saw or didn't see. What? That was a, that was a little touch that is really lost in my modern life of like, yeah, people came in the house and like, Rested their gun up against the doorway. Oh, my God. Got the breeze for a while and then went on their way. And you, did, you didn't think anything of it. You didn't think twice about someone carrying a gun. So it's a small thing, but it's another detail in there that really, like, that really gets it right for the culture and the time. Uh, and then as music fans out there, one of the best parts of the whole movie, the national anthem. The, the Barbershop Quartet? Phenomenal. One of the best <laughs> anthems ever. I was thinking and, the same thing. And it, it, I was rambling on earlier about the Olympics and how, for all my cynicism, it is the, the finest courts, fields, whatever your sport is, officiated in the most perfect way. You'll never have a better experience playing your sport and for these kids that played in these little podunk gyms and stuff to get to the big time they heard a lot of bad national anthems so a little touch like that that they went out of their way to do a great great national anthem and it reminded me in the uh oh shit what year the 90 something nba finals the nets and the spurs the uh the young spurs played the jason kidd Kenyon Martin, Richard Jefferson, Nets, and Fish did the national anthem. <gasps> what? Fish? Yeah. And it was like, it was like, ladies and gentlemen, <gasps> Atlantic recording artists, Fish. No. Yeah. It's tremendous. And they do it barbershop quartet. No. And, uh, it's not, you, dude, we have the internet. Chris, it's okay. We have the internet. I'm, it's, I can't, I, I can't wait. I'm Googling it right now. It reminded me of that. And then, uh, let's see, my last note is another callback to the culture and getting the period right. Uh, 
where they show the bus going to the game and all the cars in the town are behind it. Yeah. And that concept of like last person out of town, turn off the lights kind of thing Mm -hmm. that in a world where there was nothing else to do, that's completely authentic. Like the whole fucking town left and the businesses were closed and because you were in the other town watching your team and the, and all the towns worked like that. Yeah. When, when it was the road game, the whole town followed. And last one out of town turned the lights off. Very, my, very much a, a Dick Higgs. Uh, my dad in, uh, in Everly, this small town during the 60s when he was in high school, the, the girls team was actually a fucking dynasty that was going nice. make out of the state tournament winning titles. And he spoke very nostalgically and warmly about how the whole community, as you were saying, made it down to Des Moines. And otherwise, these little farm boys didn't get to the big city for any reason, ever. So it was like this great adventure, road trip, sort of go support the local team. Memory made, you know, road tripping with his buddies, cheering his classmates on to victory. It just sounded like the most wholesome, happiest time of his life. Sort of one of them anyway, you know. A couple years ago, uh, Deerfield boys went to state, and it was the first time ever. And I didn't get to experience it. Uh, I was at work because that's this coach's job is to go to work. But my family got to experience it. Lori works at the school, and of course the boys. And I feel. I feel a little bad for the other Deerfield sports teams because our baseball team went to state uh, just as recently. And we've had a couple of runners. You know, when it comes to track and cross country, the whole team doesn't necessarily go, but if you have a stud runner, they go. Um, but it's different when the basketball team goes. That's a that's a real community thing. And even though I didn't get to go to the game, I listened to it on the radio. Uh much like Shooter, I wasn't as drunk, but I did listen to it on the radio. And I got to see it firsthand. I got to see a small town galvanize around their little team. And they lost. They lost in the semifinal on whatever day, Friday. Uh, they didn't make it to Saturday. But the everybody kind of, everybody dropped what they were doing and made signs and all that stuff, all that uh, whatever you want to call it, all that Americana, all that kitsch, it all happened in Deerfield just a couple years ago, and it was great. And mm. as we've talked before, Chris, you've said, you know, it kills you. You can't just, you just can't stomach the losing team. And yeah. as I listened to the game, you know, and I heard when it, when it was mathematically like out of reach, something inside me felt kind of good like what yeah yeah that that dad thing that coach thing of like this is gonna really hurt Hmm. but those but those boys this is a special kind of hurt that only they get and it's very rare and it's very special and they're all gonna come out of it with something of their own and just like the bracket on a bigger scale and all that the older I get, that that little that part of me 
my empathy for the losing team and the uh there's no hanging your heads here uh all that stuff all that stuff is important to me as i get older even even in defeat it's special and it's great that is so beautiful because you fucking fought your way there and you just (laughs) weren't good enough and they were better and or it just it's not like the people who, who who hoist the trophy at the end of the tournament are the only ones that are proud of themselves after it's all over. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah you're, you have memories for, uh, for, of a lifetime of like, yeah, we fucking made it to state and that was a great thrill. And oh, the agony of defeat, but still an awesome ride, you know. Like that's yeah, you didn't, lose because you, you didn't lose because you didn't fucking try that day. No. No, you, you fought just as hard. It just... You you had to get so lucky for three straight games or whatever to get there, even. And then... Yeah. I don't know. Just wasn't there that game. Shots didn't fall. Whatever. They were just better. So, are you saying there's, like, a richness to the privilege of losing in a yes. game like that? Yeah, I, said I think... several podcasts ago that absolutely, yeah, there is... Interesting. Losing with honor. There is honor in that. Great honor. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what makes winning satisfying is that you've risked the loss. Ah, yeah. So the fact that you were able, there's some acknowledgement or recognition, I think, amongst all competitors of like, hey, you lost, but you took the fucking gamble. You, 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 You tried. You were out there, you know, giving it everything you had and uh, for that you should be proud of yourself and if the winning team has any kind of sportsmanship you know before they celebrate before they even celebrate there's handshakes and there's hugs of like could have been us man you know that's what made the Pistons we won it could have been you guys of the early 90s such bitches were walking off the floor when the (laughs) goals what happened? Yeah. Playoffs, right? Like, it was a... Uh, yeah. Tell me what happened. For years, the, the Detroit Pistons, when Michael Jordan was young, they were beating the Bulls in the playoffs and going on to championships and such. But Jordan just kept getting stronger, and the team got better to the point where they finally beat the Pistons in a playoff series. And in that last game of the playoff series when it was clear that they were going to lose rather than, you know, so like the starters get pulled off and the, and the bench players come onto the floor to play out the final seconds or whatever, as that was happening, these proud champion Detroit Pistons starters who couldn't stomach the loss rather than stick around to shake the hands of the opponents that finally overcame them, they all just walked off the court and went back into their locker room before the game was over. Oh, that's gross. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. When, that's when teams truly disliked each other. They weren't fucking buddies. They didn't hang out in the offseason and, like, say, hey, we should all join one team together. No. That, before all that. Those those teams genuinely disliked each other. Those, those guys, those men disliked each other as people. I like what you were talking about before with the the idea of risk and the respect that the spectators have for 
I'm just thinking every single shot taken is a risk. And there's just such... Mm, I don't even know, maybe even envy in the people watching of having the courage to take the risk over and over and over and over again in order to advance your team to hopefully a winning position just during the course of one game. It just makes me wonder if that's why people like sports so much is just watching the risk over and over and over again. The best reality show on TV. Yeah. I think it's a little bit connected to what kept your dad going back to the track. Adams is like, you know, there's a chance that I'm going to lose on this bet, but I'm going to, I'm going to roll the dice again anyway. Let's see what happens. (laughs) The thrill of the risk. Yeah, right. Well, I think he appreciated a good sportsman, too. I think he liked watching athletes the way I like watching athletes. That's probably... And not that he liked watching jockeys, per se, or horses in particular, but the unknown. There's sort of a joy in the unknown. You just don't know what's going to happen. You can try to make predictions. You can use all the data and all the stats and try to predict what's going to happen in any game or in any competition. But it's the the factor of the unknown that is just such a thrill. Well, that's what made the bracket in March Madness so thrilling year after year was that they'd make all those projections, they'd do all of the analysis, and then there would inevitably be a series of upsets. Ah, I love that. And in that in that beautiful symmetrical bracket, you don't know where it's going to happen, and it's often the most unexpected of places, the most overwhelming favorite versus the most overwhelming underdog. And Ah. that's the game that does it. And it happens every single year. It's a a lock to happen that you're going to be watching. It might not be the first night or the second night, but one night you're going to be sitting around and your broadcast is going to say, now we take you to this site where this game is in progress. And sure enough, Cinderella emerges. A, a higher seed is getting a real test from an underdog, and you get to see it play out in real time. Awesome. And when that team wins, something happens to them. Their, their coach, their players together, they accomplish something, they knock off a favorite, and then they're different. After it happens, they're like, fuck yeah, we're in this thing. And the next team that plays them, Nobody wants to play that team now because they fucking believe. These guys believe now. And you see it. it and that's what we missed this year. But that's, that's something, and because something happens to them, something happens to you. Spectator. Yes. And that's what, I become a child. I'm, I'm a total, when the bracket happens, I'm a child. That's why I need it so bad. Because it, I don't think about work or my family or anything else. I'm a little kid. Hanging on every shot <laughs> and hoping that every game is the greatest game I've ever seen. But sometimes it, sometimes it happens. And you're rooting for the underdog every single time. Oh, you better believe it. And vengeance. Oh, I love the vengeance of the bracket. As soon as your team gets beat, the next team that team plays, I'm buying a t-shirt. I'm getting a tattoo. 
I can't wait for that game. <laughs> completely irrational, completely immature, completely juvenile, and I missed it this year. It's okay. A couple this year when it didn't happen to go all the way back to the beginning, and then I promised Nath I'll shut up. Okay. When it came down that there wasn't going to be a bracket, honestly, a part of me was like, I get a year off. I get a break. Aww. Because I put a lot of time. The bracket is my final exam, and I put a lot of time into it. When it comes out, from when it comes out to when they lock and the game start, you can't change your picks anymore. That's all I think about for like three days, which I love. But at the same time, I was like, oh, good. I, I get a break. And I will be that much more excited when it comes back, you know? Just take it away for a year, and that'll that'll get the fire going again. Oh, I can't wait. Till it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. That was Cinderella. And uh, this could open the door to three solo hours of me just talking about the bracket. Uh, but it seems like this might be the place to, to put a lid on it. I... I'm just going to say this before we get off. I really liked how in this movie you could see in the 80s they used to use newspapers as a way to show what was happening in the world. Like the headlines oh, yeah. from people reading the newspaper was like... During the montage. During the music montage. Yeah, they used to use that like, all the time in movies and now they don't use it anymore because nobody fucking reads the newspapers. Yep. But I really love that. Hickory yeah. on a roll. Hickory wins big. Yeah, right. After Twitter feed now or something like that, I suppose. <laughs> Your box yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, hey, I started a basketball poem today. I can lay it on you before I go to bed. Do it. Please. Work in progress. All right. When I was a kid, my favorite shirt said, Basketball is life and the rest is just details. Uncoordinated nerds who never knew the satisfaction of making the net snap on a step back with a defender in their face would sniff and say, It's just a game. Like all my love was empty as the air and the ball I bounced. The ball I bounced came out of the box with a fine full leather veneer inscribed with the autograph of a seven-foot beast dunking with both hands behind his head on the side of the box like dunking blind and backwards was no big deal. Off the gravel in the yard, it was hard to know which direction off the dribble the ball was ever going to go. Off the mud against the garage, we painted polka dots with every brick and bank shot. That's all the further I've gotten so far. I like it. The polka dots on the garage door. Totally. Wet ball. Yep. Me while I play as a fly enthusiasm aimed at your indifference Scan the floor for one tap and do a bobbing hand Any signal coming back on the same land for a frequency wavelength How's the reception connection? Don't flip the dial, let's get performance It's commercial free, it's commercial free. Only thing for sale up here is me and my CD You're free to catch up on all times at the top of your lungs Gotta make and I can turn it up but I can't turn you down Gotta make what I need to do Point, click, flip around, phone.